All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome to our very first CME Palooza. I'm going to hold off on calling it the uh, first annual CME Palooza until we see how everything goes with this one. Um, but I don't want to take too much time away from our very first presenter, so I just want to give a quick overview of how the sessions are going to work. Um, there are three ways that you can ask questions. Uh, one, if you have a Google Plus account, you can click on, there's a little Q&A link uh, at the bottom of the screen. You can ask questions that way. Uh, you can also send a tweet to me, at the CME guy, using the CME Palooza hashtag. Um, and the third way is that you can just submit a question right in the comment box on the CME Palooza website, uh, sort of right below where you're watching the video. And that'll shoot an email directly to me, and I can verbally ask the presenter's questions. Uh, once this session ends, and this is how all the sessions will run, once this session ends, this video stream will end. Um, and within five minutes or so, I'll have a new video stream up uh, on the website for the next presentation. So all you will need to do is just refresh your screen uh, until you see the next video stream appear. It might not happen immediately, but within a couple of minutes. Um, so you might have to hit it a couple, once or twice. Uh, you don't need to go to a different web page. You can be right there on that CME Palooza Live website. Uh, so that's it for now. Um, let's get started kicking things off. Uh, will be Brian McGowan, Chief Learning Officer at Archmedics, presenting on why adult learning theory is insufficient to drive learning. So Brian, you can take it away, and I'm going to mute myself. Thank you, Derek, and uh, let me start by saying thank you uh, from the bottom of my heart for doing this. I really think we're going to look back a few years from now and realize that you're doing something that um, adds so much value to what this community needs. So, so my heartfelt appreciation. Um, I'm going to move over to my slides here. And uh, uh, in, in the next 25 minutes, what I'd like to do is walk you through a story that really has three parts. The first is um, in about five or six slides, we'll review some recent research that I've been doing, identifying what I've come to call the natural learning actions. And then uh, we will look at a resulting new educational design obligation. And I'll try to frame that up for you as we get to that part. And then the third part is that we'll explore a set of practical examples that should allow you to begin to apply the lessons that you've learned here into your programs. So part one. We um, looking back, would I think all agree that medical education's evolved in many ways, especially in the way that content is developed, has been evolving towards increasing use of adult learning theory, adult learning principles. Simultaneously, the way medical education is being delivered has evolved, and we're moving on to more dynamic, more engaging opportunities. But regardless of the evolution that we've seen over the last three or four decades, there remains one outstanding and what I would refer to as an undermining assumption in the way medical education is developed and delivered. And that assumption is that learners know how to learn. Now, um, it led me about a year and a half ago with my colleagues at Archimedics to ask a question of ourselves. Do learners really know how to learn? And that led us to a research project 
in which we interviewed more than 200 clinician learners and we attempted to deconstruct the process of learning, which I'll explain in a sec. And then we wanted to understand how the learners took um, or leveraged this process of learning as they were engaging with content. And finally, we then wanted to explore the perceptions of how the learners felt they were, how effective and efficient they were at utilizing or leveraging this process of learning as they see it. That led us to really uncover what we refer to now as the four natural learning actions. The first is that the learners generally acknowledge that as they're engaging with content, much like this experience that you're having now, one of the key um, actions that they need to take to really benefit from this learning experience is to take notes. And they take notes in a myriad of ways, from notebooks to post-it notes to index cards. Um, ask 20 clinicians what their note-taking habits are and you're likely to uncover 40 different approaches. The second action that we uncovered as part of the process of learning is that from these notes, clinicians acknowledge that they need some way of setting reminders for themselves. Now, whether that's, again, post-it notes attached to the front of their computer screen, which I'm sure many of you are looking at right now, or whether that's sending themselves emails or um, dog-earing the pages of their notebooks, ask 20 clinicians how they set reminders so that they can reflect and re-expose themselves to content, and you're likely to get 50 different approaches that they've tried over the years. The third learning action from clinicians is one I'm sure we'd all acknowledge, and that's as they're engaging with content from a lect uh, lectern or through an online platform, quite frequently new questions arise. They're trying to connect what they're hearing to what they believe. It either validates or it contradicts what they believe. So new questions arise. And now the clinician learner is in this cognitive tug of war where they're struggling to make sense of the new questions and answer the new questions as they arise. So they may open a new browser, they may pull out their smartphones, they may open some uh, a journal table of contents looking to answer these questions and almost immediately their attention becomes fragmented. The fourth learning action is a subtle form of social learning that I refer to as social triggering. And this is the idea that while you're taking notes while you're answering new questions as they arise, your consciousness ebbs and flows from what the lecturer or the facilitator is presenting to you. And although it may not be something that you're fully consciously aware of, you and clinician learners, adult learners in general, pay um, peripheral attention to what's going on around them. So if Derek were to start taking notes, or the person to the left of you were to all of a sudden lean forward in their chair and start paying attention with increased focus, those triggers actually reconnect you to the content. It's a subtle form of social learning where you norm off those around you. So to recap, in the process of learning from these interviews we conducted with more than 200 clinicians, we identified what we refer to as the four natural learning actions, note-taking, reminders, search, and social triggering. But the assumption was that learners know how to do this inherently. 
So the key part of our research was to begin to understand whether the learners felt proficient at these four things or whether this was really just a jerry-rigged approach to learning. So we asked the learners to give themselves an average grade. How good are you at taking notes? How good are you at setting reminders? How effective are you at answering new questions as they arise? Or how keyed in are you or how available is the ability to trigger off other learners? And what you'll see from this slide now is that by and large, the clinicians acknowledged that though they're aware of these actions, they fundamentally feel unprepared to leverage these actions effectively. A lot of that has to do with what we as educators have provided them with. So let's look at the second part of this presentation. If we believe that learners, per our research, are not fully equipped to efficiently and effectively learn, we should ask ourselves, how do we help our learners learn? And what I'd like to do now in about five or six very simple slides is introduce an idea that I'm bringing from social um, psychology or organizational psychology. And it's, it's, it's uh, simply understood as a, a system of structures and nudges. You may also understand this to be the, the process of choice architecture. If we want patrons in this subway stop to use the stairs versus the escalators, what can we do to make the stair choice a better choice for the pedestrians in the subway stop? And this is a social experiment that was done years ago where they actually applied the electric um, piano keyboard from big to the staircase. And they measured the number of people that choose the piano keyboard versus the escalator. And I'm sure you can guess what they learned from that research. Well, this structure and nudge approach has been written up in a number of books. Barry Schwartz from Swarthmore wrote a book called The Choice Paradox. And more recently, uh, Rich Thaler from University of Chicago wrote a book called The Nudge. And it's all about this ability to understand what we believe the proper choice is when a person takes an action and to create the choice architecture in a way that they can take the action more effectively. And I'll connect the first part and the second part of this lecture in a split second. But let's look at some other examples of nudges, how it works, and in some cases, how it doesn't work. So here's, here's an example of how a nudge can go wrong. A sign just outside of a parking lot that clearly reads, entrance only, do not enter. As an educator, we have to accept the obligation that we're providing the structure, we're providing the roadmap for learning, not just the content. So if we don't choose and structure the learning experience effectively, our learners are going to confront these moments where they're not necessarily sure what to do next. Some other examples of nudge-based um, approach is uh, how you promote or advocate for um, someone applying um, to become a donor. So here's an example of an advertisement for um, organ donation. And here, instead of simply saying, would you like to be an organ donor, the nudge is in the language used. Would you like to help someone live after death? That's a different approach. It it structures the choice in a different way, which inclines the respondent 
to move in the direction that you believe is in their best interest, whether or not they understand it. Hey, Brian. Sure, Derek. Uh, I have a question for you. Do you want them now, or do you want me to wait until the end? Sure, you can fire away now. Okay. Question is, is it reasonable to assume that these natural learning actions differ depending upon the medium of learning? For instance, I would assume that any learner, clinician or not, has a different note-taking technique in a live versus online setting. It's a great question. As part of the research, we tried to frame the learning experience as broadly as possible. So imagine yourself in a symposium. Imagine yourself online. What we uncovered in that is that while the approaches may be different, it doesn't seem that the approaches are different based on setting. It, is see, it really seems that the approaches are different based on opportunity. So if you're in a live meeting, the opportunities that are around you may be the scrap paper that's on the, the round tables with the pens. If you're sitting at your computer, the opportunity around you may be a post-it note or a notebook. The, the reality is that if we structure the opportunity correctly, we may find that there are some commonalities, regardless of setting, that we can direct the learners to leverage effectively. Okay. Great. Um, so let me move back into the slides. Um, so uh, additional nudges. So here's an alarm clock. The alarm clock doesn't turn off until you do 20 to 30 reps with the dumbbell. Okay. So one approach would be um, simply setting an alarm clock and allowing you to hit snooze. Another approach would be creating an architecture around the wake state, what happens first thing in the morning, where they can't turn off the alarm as simply. You've structured the alarm in a different way. Uh, another approach that I love, here's an alarm clock that allows you to set a charitable donation. And every morning, it's not a real $100 bill that gets shredded, but every morning, if you hit the snooze button, it automatically makes a, a financial contribution to a charity of your choice. Do you want to stay in bed, or do you want to donate $25, $5, or $50 to a charity? It's a nudge. It's a choice architecture that changes the way a person uh, views their first action in the morning. Two more simple examples. I love this billboard. It makes uh, a thousand different points in one picture. Use electricity wisely. Simplifies the message. You understand what they're getting at. And it, it provides for you a little bit of, a, of an understanding of what they were trying to design as part of their marketing or their public service campaign. And then finally, what presentation would not be complete without a Homer Simpson um, animation? Here is a great example of a choice architecture, one that you and I and our kids face every single day, which is what does a store put near their register versus what does a store put far away from their register? What are they really directing you to buy? Now, we can imagine from a retailer's perspective that they're going to put things near the register that would allow you to most simply purchase either high margin items or impulse items. And they're going to put things far away from the register that they don't necessarily think are in their best interest. Well, we would, ref we would reverse this in medical education or reverse this in consumer health, and we'd want to put the better choices 
in the most available space and the worst choices in less available spaces. Think about how that would be applied in medical education. If we think about the learning actions themselves, then we need to embrace this idea that if a picture is worth a thousand words, a nudge is worth a million. So we can do everything in our we can to try to provide contextual help or provide guidance so that we can tell a learner what they should be doing. But the reality is we need to simplify the environment in which they're learning. We need to make sure that the best learning actions, the most efficient learning process, is the easiest process for the learner to take. And that's what I'm getting at with this nudge um, second part of our uh, lesson this morning. Finally, moving into the third part is to begin to connect the dots. So if we think about the learning actions research and we think about the research behind structures and nudges, then we can think of our obligation as educators in the following way. If the educators plan and develop content which leverages an engineered architecture with specific design choices made to drive the learning actions, and learners access the content within an environment that supports and nudges their optimized learning actions, now content and architecture are perfectly married to ensure optimal learning. Content, structure, and nudges come together in one learning experience. So what I'd like to do in the third part of this session is to introduce a few practical ways that you may be able to leverage a learning architecture model to drive learning actions in your educational programs. And I'm going to do this with my first three slides being things that we do at Archimedics but I don't want this to turn into a commercial. So I'm actually going to end with four or five slides that explain other freely available, very simple nudges that you can use in your educational practice. So the first three are focusing on what we're doing at Archimedics, and then we're going to focus on a much broader, freely available opportunity for you as an educator. Within the Archimedics platform, we're going to leverage each of the learning actions differently. So the first learning action and the second learning action are note-taking and reminders. So we've built into the platform the ability to take their notes directly connected to the content. And we've built into the platform the ability for every note to be turned into a reminder with one click of a button. We're simplifying and we're centralizing the first two learning actions. We're also doing the same thing around the third learning action. How does one learner search for new information? Here they can be directed to specific resources at the moment where those resources are most viable to them. So here you can see that not only is there a note here but the note has four or five resources and I can pick any of those resources and without leaving the learning environment without going to Google or Wikipedia or PubMed, I have access to this connected layered content architecture. Again, we're promoting the ability to ask questions without distracting their attention. And the final thing that we're doing at Archimedics is around this idea of social triggering. As you engage in content in certain instances where we turn on the social features, you'll notice that you can um, 
take notes in the architecture like we saw a few slides ago, but you can actually make your notes public. Or you can see all of the notes that other learners have taken. It's like purchasing a highlighted textbook in college or graduate school. Simultaneously, you can participate in a discussion. So connected directly to the educational content, not disconnected, we're providing the learner with the ability to do these social learning actions without distracting them. We're simplifying or we're centralizing the learning actions through these engineered nudges. As I wrap this up, I want to look at very simple things that we could do tomorrow, absent of the architecture that my colleagues and I have built. And here are some other things you might try in your programs. Some of them I think you'll, you'll nod your head at the moment you see them, which is some of the structures that we've built historically, we didn't know why we were doing it, but now if you think about the learning action research and you think about the nudge research, some of these may become a little more meaningful to you. So by creating and distributing three up PowerPoint slides, you're actually telling the learner that you believe they should be taking notes that are simultaneously connected to the content from which they're um, learning. So the seven or eight lines to the right of each slide are a structural nudge and the fact that the lines are there in the first place is an encouragement to the learner to structure their learning process. On the right side of the slide is a slightly different approach you could take. Instead of three up slides, now you should distribute the notes pages, but structure the notes pages. Underneath the slide is the two or three questions that you want to prompt the learner to reflect on as they're thinking about the slide. It's a little bit more content to develop, but you're developing the content in a way that structures the learning experience. There's no cost associated with either of the things that you're looking at right now. It just has to be integrated into your educational content development process. You need to think about this as an obligation for the educator. Your job is not done when the content is created. In many ways, that's only where it begins. We need, as educators, to structure content. Here's another example, um, something Derek's done before in his past, where you take your slides and maybe put them up on SlideShare, so they're freely available. But now you can use the commenting feature on SlideShare to actually drive reflection. So each slide in this deck, I may uh, uh, append with a specific question. Instead of saying, this is what the slide means, I can use the commenting feature to really drive them to reflect. I can drive them to the third learning action, and I can use the commenting feature to do it. The third and final practical example I want to share with you is the science of note-taking itself. And there is a science of note-taking. What you're looking at here is something referred to as the Cornell method of taking notes. It's a very specific and structured approach to organize the different aspects of what goes into a note. There's the stream of consciousness part of note-taking, but there's also the prioritization part of note-taking. And ultimately, there's the summarization part of note-taking, where you really set out an action list of the three or four things that you want to do differently. The thing I like about the Cornell method is that you can imagine flipping through a notebook 
And if you only were looking at the bottom two or three inches of every page as if it was a flip book, you would be able to quickly flip through the summary of everything that happens on those pages. At Archimedics, we've actually worked with some of our partners in their live meeting opportunities, and we've built for them a modified version of the Cornell note-taking method. So now as part of their handouts, instead of just having Hilton or Marriott paperwork on each table, they can actually distribute their own branded, structured note-taking um, materials. That's going to drive the learner to think about the art of note-taking in a different way. Okay, so how do we summarize all this? So if you think through the three parts of the presentation, they really should um, be concluded as a set of new obligations that each educator has. First off, it is your professional obligation if you want to have the impact or if you want your medical education programs to have the impact that we all desire, you need to build structure around your content that enables the natural learning actions. Number two is you personally and your staff need to hone their abilities to discern in the content what the key learning moments are that you want to structure and nudge. And finally, you need to have uh, to begin to effectively nudge your learners using some of the applied methods that I just shared with you to take their actions in simple and efficient ways. Okay, so the summary is three parts. To begin building structure around your content, to hone your ability as an educator to leverage that structure, and then to begin to leverage that structure in a way that you're nudging your learners to become better note takers, to set reminders more efficiently, to search through related content and answer new questions as they arise, and when appropriate, to collaboratively socially trigger one another. So with that, um, my name is Brian McGowan, co-founder and uh, chief learning officer at Archimedics, and let me turn it back over to Derek. Thank you, Brian. That was uh, really great. Um, I didn't even have to give you a nudge that your time was almost up. Thank you. <laughs> uh, great. So uh, from here, I'm going to end this stream. Coming up next is Scott Bradbury talking about online QI and PI CME going beyond simple data collection. Uh, take a couple minutes to get it up and going. Scott's coming to us live from his hotel room in Orlando, so we'll see how his uh, internet connection is going. But uh, I will see you all again in about five minutes. Thanks again, Brian. Thank you, Derek.